All right. Well, tonight, like I said, we're going to dig into Joshua chapters 11 and 12. And so far, we've seen the Israelites move in uh, to the promised land. Uh, They've taken the promised land just as the Lord has directed them. Uh, I love uh, the great theologian Henry Halley. Uh, probably a lot of you have some of the commentaries and some of the, the books that, that the great Henry Halley uh, has written. Henry Halley says that in the first ten chapters of Joshua, uh, we see God work three great miracles for his children. He says that we see three miracles. Number one, we see them cross the Jordan River. They could not have done that without God. Number two, we see the fall of the great city Jericho. Uh, Brother Henry Halley says they could not have done that without God. And then he says the third miracle is the defeat of the southern kingdoms with the sun standing still. And that's what we talked about last week in Joshua chapter 10. So three incredible miracles. Now we've seen a lot more miracles than that. But those are three incredible miracles that Henry Halley points out in his commentary. Um, This reminds me of one great truth. One great truth that I have repeated over and over again. I told you when we started, you were going to hear me say this over and over again. And it's this. When God makes a promise, He keeps it. Think about that for just a moment. Any promise that God makes in His Word, you keep reading the Word and you're going to find that He keeps His promise. You want to know why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. That's what Paul wrote uh, to Timothy. And so he's faithful in everything he says. He's faithful in everything he does. And we've seen that over and over again in Joshua. And I'm going to tell you, um, God is faithful and God keeps his promises whether we consider them blessings or not. See, I believe God is faithful and God keeps his promises not just with his blessings, but also with his judgment. And we've seen that in the book of Joshua, and we're going to continue to see that. So now that we've seen the kings of the south defeated, that's what we saw in Joshua chapter 10, the kings of the south have been defeated, we're now going to turn our attention to the kings and the cities of the north region. And so that's where we dig in right here, Joshua chapter 11. And tonight I'm really going to read this one passage uh, and then we'll just discuss the other verses because I'm, I'm trying to cover two chapters tonight that really kind of go together. Uh, and for the sake of time, I just can't read every verse. So I'm going to focus on this one passage tonight because it really does, um, it, it really does dictate the rest of the, the chapter. So verses 1 through 11, Joshua chapter 11, 1 through 11. It says, when Jabin, king of Hazar, heard of this, talking about the defeat of the southern kingdom, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akshaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah, south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in Nafor Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, to the Amorites, the Hittites, Parasites, our Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. That's a lot of people, okay? That's a lot of people. That king just sent word to thousands and thousands of troops, okay? So, so just keep that in mind. It says they came out with all their troops. So every king... Every region, every city that he made contact with, the Bible says they came out with all their troops 
and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. Because by this time tomorrow, think about this, in less than 24 hours, by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And here it is, verse 8. And the Lord gave, don't miss those three words, the Lord gave. The Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. When God makes a promise, what does He do? He keeps it. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Misphoroth, Maim, and to the valley of Mizpah on the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anyone that that breathed. And he burned Hazar itself. So, what an incredible passage of Scripture. Especially when you look at the context of Joshua. Joshua, at the very beginning, God said, don't be afraid. And he followed that up with, I will be with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I will be with you. Just as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. That's the promise God made at the very beginning of Joshua. And we've seen him keep that promise over and over again. But isn't it interesting that every turn, God has to come back and remind Joshua, hey, don't be afraid. I I would say it's because we have a tendency, right, to look at the things around us and be fearful. And so God just has to keep reminding us, hey, don't be afraid. Hey, don't be afraid. God does it again. But I love this passage of Scripture because if you'll remember uh, early on in the book of Joshua, I told you that not only was God faithful, not only did God make promises and keep them, we also see that God's children participate, right? They participate in the purposes that God has for them. In other words, they don't just sit around with their arms crossed, you know, watching God do something. They participate in what God is doing. And that's what we see in this passage of Scripture. So right off the bat, what do we see about Joshua and Israel? Here's what I see. Joshua and Israel trusted and obeyed the Lord. They trusted and obeyed the Lord. Without hesitation, they trusted the Lord and they obeyed the Lord. But I want to remind you, it was the Lord who gave them the victory. Okay? They trusted and they obeyed the Lord, but they didn't go out and fight with their own strength. They they didn't fight with with their own power. They went out and fought with the strength and the power of God who made a promise to them. And, And the Bible is very clear that it was the Lord 
who gave them over to Israel. Um, So I, I want you to see this. Joshua and the Israelites, again, God made them a promise and God kept it, but they had to participate. They had to participate in the plan and in the purposes that God had for them. Um, the Israelites fought hard, they fought faithfully, but the vir- victory that they experienced was because the Lord fought for Israel. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's what it says in Joshua chapter 10, verse 42. It says, because the Lord fought for Israel. And so, let's look at this northern alliance, right? This northern alliance was led by the king of Hazar. His name was Jabin. And so the northern alliance was led by the king of Hazar, and this alliance amassed a huge army. Uh, That's what Joshua tells us right here, right? This was a huge army. As a matter of fact, how did he describe it? He said it was as large as what? Yeah, as much sand as on the beach, right? As much sand as on the seashore, that's how many soldiers they saw with their own eyes. Now, the historian Josephus, Josephus uh, wrote many Letters, wrote many scrolls, and they have found a lot of those scrolls uh, throughout time. Archaeologists have, have found those. Well, the historian Josephus in one of his scrolls tells us that the Canaanites, that th- this group of this northern alliance, they were known as the Canaanites. The Canaanites in this campaign had 300,000 foot soldiers. Okay? Not only that, they had 10,000 cavalrymen. They were known to have over 20,000 chariots. So I want you to think about that for just a moment. 300,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 soldiers on horseback, cavalrymen, and then 20,000 chariots. This was a large and powerful army. As a matter of fact, uh, Josephus said it was larger than any army that the Israelites had faced up to this point. So I want to go back. What did, Josh, what did the Lord tell Joshua? Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Uh, another interesting note uh, is that over the past several years, archaeologists, you know, they've been doing a lot of digging in this area, and I found out that they have actually uncovered the ruins of, of around Jerusalem where this king uh, ruled, the city of Hazar. There are even writings that have been found. Um, they're called the... Amarna tablets, and the Amarna tablets have in it written, they wrote to Pharaoh and said, have you heard what has happened to Hazor? Like, we we have all the evidence, the archaeological evidence that this truly happened. As a matter of fact, the, the, the historians and theologians, they date it around 1380 B.C., between 1400 B.C. and 1380 B.C., the historical records back up everything that we're seeing in the book of Joshua. So an incredible army led by a huge king and kingdom. Two important statements to Joshua. Number one, do not be afraid of them. That's the first statement he made. The second statement he made was, I will hand them all, right? I will hand them all over to you. And not just hand them over to you, I will hand them all over to you slain. That's that's an incredible promise. Those are incredible statements. I believe this was a command and a promise all in one from the Lord who who has already proven his faithfulness to Joshua and the Israelites. So think about the statement that God made 
to Joshua, the statement that God made to Israel, now how do they respond? Now, we've seen them respond different ways. We've seen them respond with obedience. We've seen them respond with disobedience. We've seen them delay, right? But what do we see right here? We see immediate, right? Joshua and the entire army responded with immediate obedience. Uh, They went against them suddenly. That's what it said. In other words, Joshua said, hey, guys, they're here. It's time to go to war. And the whole army went out with Joshua, and they didn't waste any time. They suddenly attacked this huge army that was there to attack them. Uh, They went against them. I love this because verse 9 summarizes Joshua's heart. What does verse 9 say? It said, Joshua did as the Lord directed. But that's obedience. You, You know what God calls us to every day? He calls us to obedience. Just obey Him. Obey Him in every area of our lives. And I love this because that's what we see in Joshua. We go on to read that Joshua totally destroyed them. That's what the Bible says. The Israelites, if you keep reading, okay, I'm not going to read every verse, but if you start in verse 12 and you go all the way down, uh, all the way through chapter 11, here's what happens. Uh, The Israelites take all the royal cities, they take all of the kings and destroy them. Verse 15, I love this. Verse 15 says, As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So not only did Joshua do what God told him to do, Joshua completed what God told Moses to do. He he didn't leave any stone unturned, right? I mean, he did it all. Verse 18 goes on to tell us that this war lasted for a long time, right? So he, he, he did. He, he, he continued to go on and go on. And the rest of the chapters, as we'll see, now this one campaign, this one campaign was one day. But the rest of the campaign goes on for a long time. And we'll see that starting in chapter 13. And, and we'll move on down as we see the territories that they have to take. But, but verse 20 says this, and this is an interesting verse, and I do want to pick it out because I want to talk about it for just a moment. Look at verse 20 in chapter 11. It says, For it was the Lord Himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that He might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's a tough verse, right? When you, when you look at that verse, that's a tough verse to read and a, turf, a tough verse to understand. But when you look at context, it, it's actually very easy to get. Uh, this passage has actually confused many people, especially when they take it out of context. But again, I love Dr. Tony Evans, and he's got a good word about this passage of Scripture and really uh, about this campaign that the Israelites were on. Listen to what Dr. Tony Evans says. He says, the Bible has a lot to say about God hardening the hearts of sinners. It's important to recognize that God only hardened Pharaoh's heart, and we're talking about Exodus chapters 9 through 11. He says, it's important to recognize that God only hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh first hardened himself. That happened in Exodus 7 and 8. See, you could say, well, that's not fair. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
you better look at the context. Because in Exodus 7-8, through 8, it was Pharaoh who hardened his heart against God, and God just handed him over to his sinfulness. God said, okay, you've made your choice. Now you're going to get it. Not harden the hearts of people who are truly seeking him, but rather the hearts of those who are defiantly rejecting him. The Canaanites were not struggling to do right, but were determined to do wrong. When people reach that point of willful rebellion against God, God will further harden their hearts to accomplish his purposes. I can't say it any better than Dr. Tony Evans just said it, okay? And uh, if, I, if I didn't give you time to write that down, I'll repeat it for you later. But, but ultimately what, what Dr. Tony Evans is saying and what I agree with in Scripture is that God didn't just go, oh, I'm going to harden their hearts so I can kill them and get rid of them. That's not what it says. What it says is these people were given opportunities to turn from their sinfulness, and they did not. They defiantly rejected God. They rebelled against God. And since they hardened their hearts, God said, okay, I'm going to harden it so far that you will wage war against my people and my purposes and plans will prevail. And so I think that's incredible. I think that's incredible, especially when you look at the context. Now, when you move into Joshua chapter 12, and again, I'm, I'm not going to try to read this whole chapter because if you do, you're going to notice that it's, a, it's basically just a history chapter. But I don't want to demean its value. It, it definitely has value. This chapter, what it does is it explains the land that was taken, first of all, on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, the land on the east side of the Jordan River was taken by Moses and, and as well by Joshua. And the Bible says that Moses split the land between the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. That was a promise that had been made, and that promise was kept. And then you've got the land on the west side of the Jordan River, which was taken by Joshua and the Israelites. And what you have in chapter 12 is this. You have a list of 31 kings, okay? You have a list of 31 kings that is given. And in general, at this point, uh, of, of the Israelites' campaign moving into the pro- uh, promised land, in general, the entire land was now conquered by God's children. Okay? So at this point, most of the promised land, and, and like I said, theologians would say from a geographical standpoint, uh, they pretty much conquered the land. Right? What they did was when they took Jericho, they, they basically separated the north from the south. And, and so... They took Jericho, then they took all the kings and kingdoms of the south, and now they've taken all the kings of the north. And so there were some small groups, and we're going to deal with them uh, as we get to you know chapter 13 and we move forward. There were some small groups of Canaanite people that remained. Um, as a matter of fact, if you want to be specific, the Philistines still have to be dealt with, um, the land of Sidon and the land of Lebanon were still unconquered. Um, these were, you know, there, there were some large portions of land, but they were all split up. And, and so I, I love, again, when you look at what's happening, um, you know, there are people that want to take Scripture out of context, and there are people that want to accuse God uh, of being an angry God. Uh, they want to accuse God of being unfair, right? 
They, the people want to do that. They want to attack the Bible, and they will use the book of Joshua many times uh, to start their attacks. And so David Jeremiah, in his commentary, he answers this question. This is the question that was asked of Dr. David Jeremiah. Why does God allow so much war and so much killing as seen in the book of Joshua? That was the question that was posed to Dr. David Jeremiah. Why does God allow so much war and so much killing as seen in the book of of Joshua? Dr. David Jeremiah reminds us that God gave the Canaanites opportunity after opportunity to recognize him. One example of this is Rahab. Right? When Joshua came in, what did Rahab say? We've heard about your God. We've heard about what God is doing with you, his people. You know what that means, right? That means the Canaanites knew about God. They knew about what God was doing and what God could do. And yet, Rahab I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with your God. Rahab's the only one. So that's just one example, right? One example. Dr. Jeremiah says God gave the Canaanites opportunity after opportunity to recognize him. However, time and time again, the Canaanite people chose Baal worship. In other words, they worshiped false gods. They rejected the God of Israel. They chose, they willfully chose a pagan lifestyle filled with evil. And they were forewarned by God of the consequences if they did not turn from their sin and repent. Even those people, right? Even those people knew who God was. They they were well aware of, of God. They were well aware of what God was doing and what God had done as these people came out of Egypt and came to their land. We may not see, here's the thing, I, I read this. I read that list. I read that list of kings in, uh, in Joshua chapter 12. I looked at all of that and I was like, okay, so, so how does someone today read what they read in Joshua chapter 11 and even read what they read in Joshua chapter 12? How does someone read that and say, what does that matter to me today? What, what does that have to do with me today in, in Start, Louisiana? What does that have to do with me? I work at the bank or I work in the field. I'm a farmer. What, what does this have to do with me? And so I, I came up with my own response, and that is this. I may not see this kind of war today, right? I may not see this kind of war today as a child of God, but I'm going to tell you something. There is war going on right now. It's called spiritual war. There is a spiritual war taking place right now. It is real, and it is happening each and every day. Listen to me. The enemy is the same. It's Satan. And what's the goal of Satan? We already know this. John chapter 10. What did Jesus say the goal of Satan was? Three things. Still kill and destroy. Listen, it was that way then, and it ain't ever changed, and it ain't ever going to change. That's the goal of Satan. And Satan... He has his demons, and they are out there fighting every day. They're in here fighting right now, right? They're using every means necessary to still kill and destroy. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us about the devil's schemes and how he is trying to thwart God's work and purposes in Ephesians chapter 6. If you want to talk about spiritual warfare, if you're saying, Brother Jeff, what are you talking about? Go read Ephesians chapter 6, and then come back and we'll talk about it. Because Paul's very clear 
that Satan is alive and well, and he is attacking today like he has always attacked. Spiritual warfare, that's what's taking place. But here's what I want you to see, right? In Joshua chapter 11, the Bible says, right, that God spoke to Joshua, right? He spoke to Joshua. What did he say to Joshua? Joshua, don't be afraid. He knew that Joshua was about to look on something that he had never seen before, right? An army as vast as the sand on the, on the seashore. He knew that Joshua was about to put his human eyes on something that could, and for many of us would, <laughs> cause our hearts to race, right? Maybe even cause our hearts to cower. But God spoke to Joshua. He said, don't be afraid. And then he said two words that I want you to hear tonight. God said, I will. Don't miss that, right? God said, I will. And then we read that it was the Lord who gave them over to Joshua. I'm going to tell you, Satan's powerful, right? He's powerful. Don't, don't doubt the power of Satan. He's powerful. But I'm going to tell you this. My God is more powerful. My God is most powerful. And if I'm his child, right, then he cares for me. And he makes me promises. And he speaks to me. So listen, what God did in Joshua chapter 11, God is still doing today. The, the battle that Joshua was facing, yes, it was a physical battle. Uh, yes, it, it, it was face-to-face combat, right? And you might say, well, that's not me. I've not been there. Well, some of you have been there. <laughs> if you've served in our armed forces, yeah, you have been there. But, but on an everyday basis, we may not face a battle like that, but I'm going to tell you something. We do face a battle. Because I'm going to tell you, tonight you're going to go home, and before you lay your head down, Satan's coming after you. Somehow, some way. He don't want you to sleep tonight. He'll be uneasy. He doesn't want you to rest in the Lord. He wants you to doubt. He wants you to fear. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning, Lord willing. You're going to get up out of that bed. And you're going to think, ah, well, nothing's going to happen to me from my bedside to my shower. I'm going to tell you, Satan is already after you. He's already after you, just like he's after me. He wants every thought. He wants your every thought. He he wants you, right? Every step you make, he wants you. And what does he want? Say it again. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. But if you keep your eyes on God, right, and you keep your heart, open to God, and you keep your ear (laughs) open to the voice of God, you're going to hear God say exactly what he said to Joshua. Hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yes, Satan's coming after you. Yes, Satan's strong. But I will. (laughs) I will. I will. I I love those words. I'm going to tell you, um, I read this, and, and I thought, you know what? This applies to me today just like it applied to Joshua. There's two truths that I want to leave you with tonight. Two truths. Number one, in Christ, we don't live condemned. We live free. We've been set free to live fully and eternally. Spiritual warfare for Satan is this. He wants you. He wants you to sin, and then he wants you to be buried underneath the guilt of that sin. He, he wants you to feel the condemnation and he wants you to be smothered by condemnation. He wants you to be embarrassed about it. 
He wants you to hide in shame about it. He does not want you to recognize it, confess it, repent of it, and live free. He doesn't. Again, when we talk about the the purposes of Satan, John chapter 10, verse 10, right? Jesus said the enemy, right? Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus turns it around and says, I have come to do what? Give you what? Say that again. Give you what? Life and how much of it? Eternal, abundant, full. Yeah, absolutely. All right? So when he reminds you of Satan's purposes, don't forget his purposes, right? His purpose is that you would have life. That means right now, right? Not, not oh, God, I wish you'd hurry up and come because I'm ready for over there. Listen, if you still got breath in your lungs, he's waiting for you to live right now. Right now. He doesn't want you to cower away or to back down or to hide in shame and guilt. Listen, in Christ, we don't live condemned. We live life full and eternal. We live free. He set us free from all of that. And I said it this morning, and I told you I was going to say it again tonight. I want somebody to turn to Romans chapter 8. I could read it, but I want somebody else to do it. I want somebody to turn to Romans chapter 8, and if you feel led, just wave your hand, and I want you to read verses 31 through 39. All right, Miss Donna, read, read loud for me, okay, Miss Donna, so everybody can hear you. Yep, Romans 8, 31 through 39. Keep on, keep on, yeah. Yeah. Woo. Mm. Yep. That's right. Our mediator. That's it. Woo. All day long. All day long. Amen. I, I was waiting for somebody to say amen. 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 Look, how can you read that? How, how can you read that as a child of God and walk out of here condemned? H- how can you read that and walk out of here worried and fearful? But we do, don't we? We do. I, I mean, we just worry about this. We worry about that. We spend so much time thinking about this thing that, that is a week away 
And so we spend all this time worried about it, and then God just, God says, I will. But we don't listen. <laughs> we don't listen. God says, I will. God says, don't be afraid. I will. But we're in, uh, the whole time, what are we trying to do? We're trying to handle it. We're trying to manage it, right? I love that. It says we are more than conquerors, right? We're more than conquerors. I, I think just if it said we are conquerors, that would have been pretty good for me. But that, that's not, it doesn't say we are conquerors. It says we are more than conquerors. Let that sink in for just a moment. When I was a kid, I say a kid when I was a kid and a young adult, uh, I loved to watch boxing. Uh, I would stay up like it would come on HBO, like the, the heavyweight championship fights would come on HBO, and they'd always come on at like 11 o'clock. But I would stay up all night to watch this one man fight who at the time, was unbeatable. His name was Mike Tyson. Anybody here ever watched Mike Tyson fight early on? I'm talking about early on. The man could not be stopped. I mean, do you know how many fights he fought and knocked people out within the first minute of the fight? I'm talking about big dudes that hadn't lost. He was just, I mean, in my mind, right, in my mind, I I think of a conqueror I think about Mike Tyson when he was about 19 till he was about 25. The man couldn't be stopped. It didn't matter who you put in the ring, they were going down. And as a matter of fact, I, if you ever, luckily I didn't have to pay for them fights. Now they make you pay for them, right? But I didn't have to pay for them back then. But I would stay up all night long to watch a fight that I thought was going to be good and it lasted two minutes. But you know what? Every time he fought, I watched. Every time he fought, I watched. You want to know why? Because he was a conqueror, right? So in my mind, I had this picture of what a conqueror looks like. He looks like Mike Tyson to me. <laughs> but do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Which means you get the biggest picture. You get the best picture of a winner in your mind. Get, get the best picture of a winner in your mind. And God says... <laughs> Multiply it by 100, because that's who you are in Christ. But we have a hard time believing that, don't we? And the reason I say that is, is just look at our lives. Think about how much time we worry. And, and listen, I ain't casting no stones tonight, because I'm guilty, guilty, guilty. See, I have to say that, because my wife's in here. If she wasn't in here, I might could have got by without saying that. But she's in here, and she knows me better than anybody, other than God. And, and, and look, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of putting my eyes on the army that's as vast as the seashore and second-guessing the promises of God. I, I am. I'm guilty. I worry about this thing. I worry about that thing. And at the end of the day, I'm a child of God. And, and he tells me who I am, right? He tells me who I am in Christ. How dare anybody else tell me who I am? How dare I even tell myself who I am? If it don't line up with God's word, it's a lie. Amen? Do you know how many times I've lied to myself? Uh, Yeah, just today. Yeah, I like that. Today. Yeah, yeah, just today. You know how many times I've lied to myself? Because God's word says this is who I am in Christ. But here I am doubting it, right? Doubting it all day long. And then we wonder why. We wonder why. Right? We don't have peace. We wonder why we don't have, quote, unquote, victory. God says, I will. But why don't we believe him? Why don't we live like that? 
Listen, and I wrote this down. It's pretty easy. You probably already filled in the blanks. But in our fight against the enemy, and who is the enemy again? Satan. Listen, my number one enemy. It's not me. (laughs) Even though I'm a close second. It's not me. It's not even you. It's not somebody else. It's Satan. Satan is my number one enemy. In the fight against my enemy, I need to remember that if God is for me, then who can be against me? Right? If God is for me, who can be against me? What can be against me? Cancer? Yeah, it's big and bad. But if God is for me, then who can be against me? Right? Anybody Anybody in here ever had an enemy before? Right? Somebody that didn't like you? And somebody that maybe their goal was just to mash your face in the mud. Anybody ever had one of those? Right? Maybe we all have. And whether that was when we were five or when we were 15 or 50, I don't know. But, but, but that's Satan. Satan just wants to mash your face in the mud. And he wants you to stay in it. But if you'll remind yourself of what Romans 8, 31 through 39 says that Miss Donna just read to us. If you'll remind yourself, hey, God's not a liar. Satan is. God's not a liar. Satan is. And God says, this is who I am in Christ. And I'll either embrace it or I won't. Right? I'll either embrace the truth or I won't. So the fight that Joshua had, um, obviously, you know, we don't, we don't have this, this king of Jerusalem, uh, this king, Jabin of Hazar. Uh, we, don't, we don't have the, the 300,000 men standing in front of us, but I'm going to tell you something. Satan, uh, he's more powerful than any man on this earth. He's powerful. And, and so if you're not careful, you're going you're to put your eyes on him and, and you're going to get scared and you're going to get fearful. God says, don't be afraid. I will. I'm going to tell you something. In Christ, he did. In Christ, he did. He, he won the victory that you and I couldn't win on our own. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. If, if God be for me, then who can be against me? I'm going to tell you tonight, I'm going I'm to be saying that before I, before I close my eyes and go to bed. I'm, I'm going to remind myself of who God says I am in Christ. Tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm going to remind myself of what God says about me. All right? Not, not just a pastor of a church, but as a, as a husband in, in a home and a daddy in the home and just a, a man in the community. I, I'm going to remind myself of what God says. That way I can know the truth, right? And I can spot the lie before it ever gets to my heart. Nope, not going to hear it. Nope, not going to listen to it. Nope, don't believe it. Because this is what God says. Amen? Amen? This is a good passage of Scripture.